Hello and welcome to this week's episode of How to Be a Great GM, the podcast. Now, we were talking last week about the incredible impact that writing had in our little emerging society, as well as logistics, the wheel. Now, the wheel, of course, is a rather unique item and is definitely an improvement on the triangle, which only had three bumps, which was an improvement on the square, which obviously only had four bumps. So as we have moved through uh, time, we've eventually got it down to zero bumps, and that is where we are at today. The shape of the wheel hasn't changed much. You know, they tried ovals and things, but that just went backwards and forwards and uh, didn't really help. Now, wheels are great because you can make wheelbarrows as well as all sorts of weird and wonderful things, but they generally will help you carry more stuff. Now, if you attach wheels to a cart and you figure out the axle system and then you attach an animal to the front of that cart, you suddenly get a huge amount of transportation power. Now, when we look at the Egyptians, for example, when we look at how they built those pyramids, you go, well, the Egyptians didn't have very large draft horses. They didn't have Clydesdales wandering around. They didn't have elephants to tow these things. They didn't have giant rhinoceri running around doing that either. They used slave labor. Slave labor is really useful if you want to achieve a lot of moving stuff. And they didn't necessarily use wheels, but they used logs, which rolled and use the same principle as the wheel. The reason why the Egyptians didn't have a vast amount of animals helping them in their quest to build giant tombs for explorers and adventurers to go and have fun in is quite simply because they didn't have the animals required. They had, they had other things such as crocodiles, also not really domesticated. They had lions, uh, not domesticated. They had leopards and cheetahs, uh, not domesticated. But they did have cats and dogs, both domesticated. So what was the difference? What was the great separator between dogs, cats, rhinos, elephants, horses and cows? Quite frankly, it's the attitude of the animals. In order for an animal to be domesticable, as they say, using that wonderful word, it needs to have five characteristics. And I'm going to try and remember what those five are. The first characteristic that the animal needs to have, in general, is a pack mentality or a herd mentality. When you look at individual animals that hate to cooperate with others, black rhinoceros, for example, they really don't like working with each other or anything else for that matter. It's very difficult to keep a lot of these animals around because they'll kill each other. Quite literally, they will just destroy everything around them because they don't want to be around people. They are the ultimate isolationists the ultimate introverts. So you need an animal that likes to work together as a group. Dogs are classic examples of this. They'll work on their own for sure, but they work better as a pack. If you look at cats, yes, cats are the exception to the rule, and cats are just weird. Cats know where their food comes from, and they've got us pegged as far as I'm concerned. So working together as a group is, is very important in order for animals to be domesticable. Once you've identified who works well as a group or as a herd, the majority of that is obviously uh, the uh, herbivore animals, it's really useful to try and domesticate something that can't eat you or that won't kill you. 
Now, again, this takes us to the second trait, which is the animal in question is not violent in its defensive posture. So dogs can get definitely get violent. They don't normally fulfill this criterion. However, once you have proved dominance over a dog, it is very seldom that it will attack you. And dogs are not necessarily always out to eat you, uh, the, especially after the domestication process. However, if you look at the elephant, for example, if you make an elephant unhappy, it will kill you. It will charge you and gore you and stand on you and rip you apart with its trunk. They really do enjoy killing things. Trust me, I know I have seen them do it. Rhinoceros are another classic example. They really, really like to kill things if they get angry. Certain types of buffalo do as well, but some types don't. And the type I'm particularly talking about are things like water buffalo and what we would call the common cow. These are animals that, when under pressure, they form a defensive stance rather than an aggressive stance in general. Sheep, also not known for their pack hunting techniques, often will form a circle around the lambs and then just stand there and try and ward off things. Or, in an extreme circumstance, will just run away. We don't really like running away domestic animals, but, you know, they do, but we prefer them when they don't turn on us and try and eat us. Then they need to be able to breed and grow really quickly. We like our food on the hoof and we like it to grow fast. So we look for animals that grow really, really quickly. Sloths, for example, are not aggressive and uh, they don't mind being in groups, although they don't particularly care. But they don't grow particularly fast and they don't have a particularly good body mass ratio uh, in terms of the amount of meat that they carry on them. Now, granted, our domesticated animals we have genetically altered over hundreds and th well, over hundreds of years, or thousands of years, uh, to being slightly more buxom than their original counterparts. But generally speaking, we look for animals that reproduce really, really quickly. Pandas, for example, have not been domesticated because getting pandas to breed is nearly impossible. As a species, they are trying to prove that the Darwin Award should go to them as the species when it comes to reproduction. So we look for animals that reproduce really really quickly and then the last two are really behavioral kind of attitudes and things with regards to the animals uh, they uh, are more likely to be domesticated if they have multiple functions if they're just a single function animal and that's not very useful um, and uh, then they need to be able to generally speaking be quite hardy animals animals that are not particularly robust don't really do much for us. We've never really, really domesticated the rat. It's not a particularly useful animal, although the rabbit is, but that's because it reproduces really quickly. It's not known for its aggressive tendencies. They don't mind being together in a burrow. As a matter of fact, you have to stop them from being together in a burrow after a while. Otherwise, you get more rabbits. So generally speaking, we need these animals to be able to um, co-mingle and that sort of thing and not have too much intelligence. That's again why we haven't necessarily tamed great apes and things. They have herd mentalities. They generally do have some good meat on them, especially if you are living in the Congo and eat chimpanzee meat because that's what you've been doing for a thousand years. But they're too intelligent. They do kind of crazy things. Octopi, another great example. Very difficult to domesticate an octopus. So we look for all of those traits in our, in our wildlife, and we don't find it being present very often. 
horses came into that uh, approach. Horses not particularly aggressive. Zebra will generally run away from predators or once the predator has struck will then just stand there knowing that they are safe because the predator is now satiated. So horses came into being, cows came into being, the variants of horses came into being, dogs came into being, of course cats came into being. Chickens, very easy, very controllable. Turkeys to a degree, but they are quite aggressive. Same with geese, but again, they're birds, so they're, they're not deadly when they attack necessarily. Swans, not so great. We don't really domesticate swans. Uh, we, we have them. We clip their wings so they don't fly away, but there's a whole bunch of issues that swans come with. Nonetheless, domesticating animals is a major step forward for humankind because what it does is it brings in the notion of a horse power. Literally, one horse has the power to move a vast amount of things that a human cannot do. That's owing to a whole bunch of very valuable things. So once you get horses, you start to get some very interesting combinations. Generally, you get horses, you can carry a little bit more than the average person. So suddenly, you can have more possessions. That favorite clay pot you don't have to leave behind, you can now take it with you if you strap it to your horse. If you combine the horse and the wheel, as we were talking about earlier in this podcast, suddenly you get a cart, and that cart can carry way more things than ever before. And if you lash several of these pack animals together that don't mind walking next to each other, suddenly you get a giant horse train that can then haul entire households in wagons across great plains and deserts and all kinds of terrain that normally wouldn't have been crossed by humans. Now you can because you can take your food supplies with you and you end up with the entire world being colonized by people who can basically move faster than other people. And that becomes a major issue for those tribes that are not as advanced or sophisticated. So when we come back to our orc idea and we have our orcs generally in hunter-gatherer groups, we then say, well, something must have unified them. Now, religion is a great unifier in terms of bringing everybody together. We've seen how the whole of Europe is so unified and the whole of Asia is unified and there's never been any fighting whatsoever Okay, let me rephrase that. So religion is a great way of unifying groups together so that groups can go and fight other groups uh, about whose religion is more powerful. Now, these uh, groups that start to form, they've got the wheel, they've got transportation, so they can launch, launch larger and bigger invasion campaigns, spreading their particular thoughts and ideologies far and wide. How you do that is quite tricky, and you have to manage it because you get rebellions and uprisings and all those kinds of wonderful things, and uh, it becomes a nightmare, in generally, unless you have lots of administration. So when we start talking truly big empires, the first major empire of significance, of course, was the Egyptian Empire or the Babylonian Empire. You could go even further back. But we're talking on a unified, holistic, single scale with determination to invade other nations and control them. The Egyptian Empire really takes the cake and it took thousands of years to develop. But over the course of time, it really dominated the entire region. Now, it had easy transportation. The River Nile took you up or down fairly quickly and fairly easily without the expenditure of too much effort. So they didn't really have a problem on that side. It's only once the Egyptian Empire started to expand into the Middle Eastern territories that suddenly logistics became a problem. 
They had the horse by that stage and their chariots, of course, were quite famous for taking their warriors into battle. And that's one of the things that allowed them to try and overcome the Hittites and all of the like in that area. So our orcs, who have got some kind of structure going that requires them to remain sedentary in one place while their crops grow. What kind of crops do orcs grow? I think it's an interesting question to ask in its own right. Nonetheless, our orcs are growing crops. They're starting to form these little settlements. They start to get writing. If you take the writing out of the equation, if we remove writing from the equation, we very seldom get sustainable empires unless there is some kind of bureaucracy who's in charge of everything in a very strong dictatorship-like environment. This is now empires like the Aztecs or the Mayans, who although did have certain forms of written communication, they did not have the comprehensive writing that had developed in the Middle East and in Egypt at the similar, well, at earlier time periods, as a matter of fact. So if you don't have writing, controlling your empire becomes difficult. And what happens, generally speaking, with those empires is that they usually run out of food. There's a disaster somewhere in the outlying regions of the empire, and the food doesn't get back fast enough to the capitals. The capital starts to collapse because that writing isn't there. The, 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 the writing ends up on the wall, as a matter of fact, and these civilizations start to collapse. At least that's one of the theories as to, as to why these uh, nations just suddenly vanish. Now, the orcs, if they don't have writing, let's say that they have sustainable crops and that they understand that expanding too much becomes a problem. The next problem that then starts to come in is defending your borders. How do you defend your borders from these roving bands of orcs that haven't settled down or from other species that are wandering around like those interfering little gnomes who haven't bothered to invent writing and have decided that raiding is going to be better and, and easier for them. Well, either you launch these large-scale invasions and you start to develop the Roman Empire where you simply take over all of the cultures and then you try to make them Roman, but then that causes the original Romans to complain that the new Romans aren't real, true Romans, and all those kinds of things start to creep in. You get aside that headache, then you start to move on with the next problem, which is then trying to maintain all of these things. How do you pay them? How do you reward your soldiers for being soldiers? Well, it's really difficult to have a standing army, and most early nations didn't have standing armies. A lot of the time, especially if you look at the Greeks, for example, there was no official standing army. It was volunteers or it was men who wanted to prove themselves or who wanted to own land or wanted the right to vote that were enlisted into these temporary forces that were established in times of need. So our orcs are going to have to have something very similar to that. Grain supply, we've figured out the orcs have discovered the wheel. We don't know how exactly that came about, but someone discovered the wheel within the orcish culture, and so they have this system. But they don't have writing. So the other thing that writing does for you as a nation is it increases your overall general knowledge. And what that does is it increases your general learning, and learning creates innovation. Because as we send out explorers who come back and say, well, these people do this with their gold, someone can read that 10 years later and go, oh, okay, well, that's quite an idea. We're going to build a blast furnace, for example. 
So our orcs who don't have reading, they might launch campaigns and forays into the gnomish territories or into the elvish territories where they come across these strange things that these creatures have developed, dead trees with bits of ink splashed all over them. It has no meaning to them whatsoever. They go home and they report that they found these people that don't have very much meat on them. They've got quite nice farms. How do they make those farms work? Well, the orcs don't really know. And again, a classic example of that is when you see the collapse of the Roman Empire, the collapse of all of those libraries, of all of that literature, of all of that knowledge, suddenly Europe goes into what is termed the Dark Ages, where things are being rediscovered that were already known in antiquity. So our orcs would lose any knowledge that would come to them, except for very basic stuff which was able to be maintained inside the memory of living orcs. When those orcs die, that knowledge is gone. So it does mean that your culture doesn't necessarily advance technology technologically because there's no basis of comparison. There is no idea of what has been done before. You are literally reinventing the wheel every single time. Writing prevents that from happening. You can read what other people have done, or in our case, watch YouTube videos or listen to podcasts and become informed. You don't have to try and discover this all on your own. So it greatly and rapidly advances civilization. And when you look at it, you go, well, once we had hieroglyphics, once we had Sanskrit, once we started to have cuneiform and all those wonderful things of writing, in the space of 10,000 years, mankind went from having uh, stone tools with maybe a little bit of an iron tool or a, a bit of a copper tool, went from that in 10,000 years to standing on the moon and flying helicopters on Mars. That's a really fast changeover when you think about it, because for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50,000 years before writing, there hadn't been a change in the general operating procedures of humans. And for a million years before then, again, there hadn't been a major uprising or change, as we saw with those stone axes and those wooden handles. So our sudden increase in capacity is because of this ability to write and to, sh uh, to spread and share that knowledge in a vast and glorious way, but also, as I said, in a way that says this is a rule because it has been written down. So you can either challenge it or not. It's entirely up to you. But this is what the rules say. And it's important for us to bear in mind that that is the, 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 the function that writing had. So now we have our empire. They've got domesticated animals. They've got the ability to share ideas and to spread ideas far and wide and to make sure that those ideas are uniform in the way that they're being spread. What's next? Where do we go to next? Our poor orc civilization is not really developing new technology. They might salvage weaponry from more advanced cultures, but they have no idea how that weaponry was made. If they invade a village, they would find these books, but have no idea what to do with those books. Some enterprising orc might look at those things and say, you know, they protected these more than they protected their own lives. What is the value of this thing? Now, if you came across some paper with stuff scribbled upon it and you were desperately trying to survive you wouldn't sit down at night and go well what does this mean what is this 
When we see crop circles, those wonderful things, whether they're real or not, who knows. But when we see those, we're not sitting down trying to interpret what they mean. Well, some of us are because they have free time on their hands. They're not invading other countries or desperately trying to find food. They literally have time to burn. And so they sit there and they try and figure out what the crop circles mean. Meanwhile, the crop circles are have absolutely nothing to do with what we think they are. They're not symbols or texts or coordinates. They're literally just the burn pattern of a giant ion engine that just happened to settle down in that particular shape. And that shape is required for transdimensional travel. We as a species have no context in which to, to reference that. And so an orc finding a book would have no context. It's only if we find other crop circles that we have made that we look back and go oh hey that looks like a man on a horse actually it's just because of the way that the landing struts and the thrusters and the burn and the this and the that oh look at that that's very interesting then we would be able to start to interpret what those symbols mean the same with our orcs if they have no way of writing things down when they come across a book they wouldn't have a clue what the book represented pictographs maybe an orc might say well that kind of looks like a snake to me oh so it's a book of snakes or is it a book of birds? Or is it a book of snakes and birds? It's a zoo. Who knows what those symbols mean? Hence, cryptography and trying to break the code of hieroglyphics was such a major endeavor that uh, people tried to do and couldn't until they found the Rosetta Stone. And uh, that changed things quite, quite dramatically. So that's where we leave our orcs as they are, sadly, developed as far as they can go with living memory and not much further. So where to from here? Well, that we'll find out next week. Until then, I wish you and yours the happiest of gaming.